Hi there. I'm so excited to welcome you to the Arthritis Life Podcast, where we share arthritis life stories and tips for thriving with autoimmune arthritis. My name is Cheryl Crow, and I am passionate about helping people navigate real life with arthritis beyond joint pain. I've been living with rheumatoid arthritis for 20 years, and I'm also a mom, occupational therapist, video creator, support group leader, and I created the Room to Thrive self-management program. I am so excited to help you live a more empowered life with arthritis. We're going to cover everything from kitchen life hacks to navigating the healthcare system to coping with friends who just don't get it. Seriously, no topic is going to be off limits on this podcast. My interviewees and I share our honest stories of how chronic illness affects our lives. This includes discussions about mental health, sex, shame, pregnancy, body image, advocacy, self-acceptance, and so much more. You'll hear stories from all ends of the spectrum, from a person who's living in Medicaid remission from psoriatic arthritis to somebody living with severe mobility restrictions and severe pain from rheumatoid arthritis. You'll hear how people manage their conditions in different ways, like medications, mindfulness, movement, social support, work accommodations, and so much more. You'll also hear from rheumatology experts who just get it. We'll dive deep into the science behind chronic pain and what's the latest evidence for lifestyle changes that can help you thrive with arthritis, including exercise, sleep, nutrition, stress reduction, and more. This is your chance to sit down and chat with a friend who's been there. Ready to figure out how to manage your arthritis life? Let's get started. Hi, my name is Cheryl Crow, and I am passionate about helping people navigate real life with arthritis. I've lived with rheumatoid arthritis for 17 years, and I'm also a mom, teacher, and occupational therapist. I'm so excited to share my tricks for managing the ups and downs of life with arthritis. Everything from kitchen life hacks to how to respond when people say you don't look sick, stress, work, sex, anxiety, fatigue, pregnancy, and parenting with chronic illness. No topic will be off limits here. I'll also talk to other patients and share their stories and advice. Think of this as your chance to sit down and chat with a friend who's been there. Ready to figure out how to manage your arthritis life? Let's get started. Okay, so I'm so excited, Christy, to have you here today. Can you let the audience know just a, a brief introduction to you, where you live, and what's your relationship to arthritis? Yeah, for sure. Well, thank you, Cheryl, for having me on. I'm really excited to have found you and to be able to share my story today. I live in Littleton, Colorado, right at the foothills of the beautiful Rockies. So we have some snow out there today. Super fun. Um, my journey with RA, yeah, it's a long one. Um, <laughs> exciting journey, I can say. Um, started at 24 years old, um, super young. Yeah very hard to come to grips with a diagnosis like that. It was after the birth of our first child. So I was thinking, wow, if this is what having a baby feels like, I'm probably going to be done with one because everything was kind of falling apart. I felt like I had a fever. I was tired, which, you know, you're going to be tired after you have a baby. Right. Um, there were a lot of other things happening that were so unusual. So that's where it started. And now I'm 48. So I've lived with this for that many years. Wow. Um, it's been a hard journey with some really good lessons and some good takeaways throughout it for sure. 
Yeah. And did you have any more children or no? Yeah, we have one more. So we have a girl okay. and a boy. They're both okay. in college now. So wow. I was really hoping that I'd be able to have a second. And that was, you know, as you know, we get involved with the figuring out what's going to work with us with medication. Yeah, yeah. I was worried if I got on something right away, I wouldn't be able to have another baby just depending on what I was taking. So Totally. And just for those listening, the um, medications that are considered safe for pregnancy, it has changed a lot in the last just three to five years. They used to be really conservative and say, you know, don't take anything. And now actually the vast majority of rheumatoid arthritis medications are considered safe. Now this is of course, talk to your doctor. This is not medical advice, but just saying that there's been a shift because of more research being available. But back then, yeah, 24 years ago, Absolutely. It's striking me that you have now lived half of your life without rheumatoid arthritis. You're at the exact half point where you had half your life without and half your life with. Wow. I also um, want to talk about another dimension of your experience, which is exercise is a big part of your life. How did you get involved in, in exercise? Were you athletic prior to your diagnosis? Yeah, absolutely. I grew up an athlete. I absolutely loved being outdoors and Um, I was just always outside kicking it around, getting dirty and played sports in high school, um, running. I ran cross country track, played basketball. Um, absolutely a a love for it. And I think that when you do identify as an active person and then you have this diagnosis, it's literally almost challenging your identity in a way. Right. Oh, completely. I know with the episode with Randy, RA warrior, Randy, she talked about that a lot. She was a college track and field athlete. I was, I was the captain of the soccer team when in my college, when I got diagnosed. So I totally uh, identify with that. Yeah. It's It's super challenging. And it's not something you're ever thinking when you're young that you're going to have to face in your early twenties. Sure. So fast forward a little bit. Um, when I was married and started thinking about starting a family, I also had this big goal and dream to do an Ironman triathlon someday. Um, I've always, been intrigued by that by seeing it on TV and I wanted to do it but that got put on hold when all of this started to go south so it's a really neat story that I can share in a nutshell but um, triathlon actually became part of my rehab Um, it's perfect cross training swimming no impact exercise biking same thing running I started with a walk because my, my doctor did tell me, I'm not sure you're ever going to run again. And I took that as offensive. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, okay, I see that now, but let's wait and see. So I actually used that triathlon mentality um, to get back to health again. And I had no idea that I'd actually be able to feel, fulfill that dream of becoming an Ironman, but I did twice. Wow, It's a full circle thing. And I am grateful for the sport and for all of the advancements we've had to be able to get to being strong again. Yeah. Yeah. And I think I'm anticipating the next question on the audience's mind, which would be, how are you managing your disease to where this is possible? Right. Um, yeah. <laughs> and what, what do you do? What's your secret sauce? No. <laughs> sauce. Well, I, I honestly think that um, like a marathon or any long distance pursuit, whether it's sport or just life in general, if you look at parenting, for example, and you just look about like, I want to raise this kid to graduate from college and you see the big picture, it's overwhelming, right? Yes. So same thing with progression of our 
our health with this disease. You have to take it in baby steps. So the whole long journey of getting the right diagnosis and finding the right treatments for me was a long, full few years process in itself. Once yeah. I could get that under control, though, I just started with goals, small goals. I want to be active again. That was it. I don't know what that's going to look like, but I'm not willing to shelf it. I'm willing to fight for it. Um, and so getting in the pool, um, and then no, I did not start a swimmer, by the way, I was not like a swimmer growing up. So I had to kind of learn that, but new challenges are also really refreshing, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I kind of just started walking into that. What do I want initially? And right now just to be active again, because I hadn't been able to for a number of years, as we all know, I mean, this thing, I was in a wheelchair at my worst. Wow. Starting from that extreme at the Mayo Clinic thinking, I hope someday I can walk and run, maybe. Um, I just started with that dream and goal and purpose and wasn't willing to give up on it. And I really didn't know how far I would get, but I know like any step I took was going to be better for me than if I didn't try. Right. And um, has it fluctuated over the years? Like for example, not to be like, for example, myself, but you know, like I've had times where my disease was really well controlled and I was like swing dancing. And I remember I used to play soccer on like a rec soccer team, you know, a post-diagnosis and, um, you know, be quite active. And then there were other times where I've had to scale back. Has it been that kind of up and down wave journey for you too? Absolutely. It is. It's not like, it's not all roses and <laughs> rainbows for sure. Yeah. One thing that we all deal with is fatigue. And yes. I'm not sure about everyone else, but me personally, even though I am at a pretty good level of remission, I still, I mean, the fatigue doesn't go away. It's always there. Mm-hmm. And so just, yes, I have to really pace myself. And there's times when I've trained a little bit too much, right? We always know, mm-hmm. like, pace yourself. I've had to really work within that, within myself and know if I need to step away because, and I always tell this athletes I coach too, if they're even just healthy runners, I say, you need to know when to pull back because your body can only take so much training to absorb, absorb that you need to step back and just rest. And it's so true. Like whether you're healthy or not, we all need to honor the rest breaks. Um, and I think living with this kind of condition forces you to be hyper aware of that. So yeah, it's been kind of more of a roller coaster than a straight line, but again, just not giving up on the bigger picture and being willing to ride that wave is what can keep you in the game. I I love that. And as a former runner, I'm, I'm saying former runner, I still, like part of my identity would be definitely like still consider myself an athlete and because I, I will carry all the lessons I learned from being an athlete, you know, to the future. And I hope that I can get back to the point. It's actually my neck is the issue with running now because I was in a car accident and it's any sort of up and down bouncing is really, that's the last frontier of my neck recovery. It's hard, but anyway, I I should actually, now I'm trying to think, Ooh, what is it called? The biathlon, the, the uh, bicycling and swimming I could probably do, but anyway, um, but it's, I really love that um, analogy of like the balancing, you know, your hard training days or maybe balancing like an endurance run with a tempo run or an interval run where you're doing like, you know, bursts of speed and then like all alternating things and then alternating that with rest. I think that's one of the most confusing areas I see with a lot of patients, especially newly diagnosed, because they 
we tend to give people the education that motion is lotion for arthritis joints, right? You do need to have some amount of movement, but the fatigue can, can interfere and make you feel like, wait, I don't even, am I supposed to just push through this if I'm feeling really fatigued? And what's really confusing is that as an occupational therapist, I've looked at the research and exercise has evidence to help reduce fatigue. But if you push past the point of your kind of just right zone, then it could cause worse fatigue. So I guess I'm making the case for having health coaches or occupational therapists or physical therapists to help patients sort through this. Cause do you also find with your clients, this is really confusing. Absolutely. And I'm always amazed and shocked, but not surprised. I think the parallel between working with chronic condition patients or members that I have with the healthy population and how exactly similar it is that you have to listen to your body. And I'm really more conservative with as a coach because you can get much farther in any pursuit if you're honoring your body first and the small tiny steps over time I always say you need to kind of try not to do those hero efforts and I know we we know about that all of us living with that if you have seven days in bed (laughs) and you're like oh my gosh I have so much to make up now and you're like okay I'm feeling good today I'm gonna do a hundred things on my list that's the hero day. And you're going to then have to pay for that. Right. Right. So it's breaking it up into those small digestible moments and a little bit over time takes you so much farther than one big exclamation point. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And it's hard if you have lived um, a lot of your life as kind of a Hey, just keep going till you're burned out because that's kind of how I was, right? I would just run until I couldn't run anymore. And then um, you could recover when you're younger. And when you're, if you're completely able-bodied, you can kind of push through, but then, or to, to a certain degree, like you're, you're right that every, you know, able-bodied people also reach their, their limits, but yeah, as chronic illness definitely teaches you to pay attention to your own yeah. bodies. Yeah. Limits. And I think, I mean, it's easy to say this when you're on the other side of that just hard, hard work of getting diagnosed and finding the right treatment for you. Cause it's exhausting in itself. But when you are on the other side of it and you will get there eventually, mm-hmm. you know, it's really hard to say like, wow, I've, you don't regret the lessons you've learned, learning how to pace yourself and enjoying those simple things and not having to just plow through the brick wall all the time in life makes your life that much richer. So, so you can true. apply those lessons to the other side of when you get this under control, there are some benefits to be able to have that perspective. Totally. Oh my gosh. And I'm curious, um, when did you become a health coach? What was that process like? Okay. Thank you for asking. That was absolutely driven by, this was after the fact and after I achieved remission, which I think we'll probably talk about yes. in a little while. But when I got in control of my own life and realizing that at my darkest point, five years of just not doing well, um, being alone, feeling so alone. And remember just like one prayer or wish to the universe was, I just, if I ever get on top of this, I promise I will, I will be that person to help someone that doesn't know how to find their way through this dark maze. And so I'm giving me, you're giving me chills. That's so beautiful. I'm trying not to get emotional because no, that's so beautiful. It's, you know, this is the hardest thing we might deal with in our life and it doesn't go away. So it's pretty, 
it's hard, but I just wasn't, I was just so driven to be able to find people. And I've told my friends and coworkers all the time, hey, if you ever know anyone that's experiencing these symptoms, they don't know what's going on. I'm not a doctor and I'm not gonna diagnose you, but I can tell you that, hey, these are things maybe you should look into. And at, at any rate, you're not alone. And I'm- Yes. And so that's kind of how it came about. Yeah. Did you have to go, did you go through a program or, okay. Yeah, I went through, so I have a, a personal trainer certificate too. And I went right. through Dr. Sears Wellness Institute to get my health mm-hmm. coach certificate and I just kind of bundled them all together because the health coach side of things is really how you're helping people navigate. You're not telling them it's not like a prescription necessarily, yeah. but it's helping them navigate through that emotional mess of what gets us stuck. Um, yes. You no, know, there's a lot of places to get stuck with this illness. And so anytime I can help someone get around those obstacles is what I'm really passionate about doing. And this is probably obvious to everyone else, but I just made the connection of the metaphor of coaching, like coaching sports versus coaching chronic illness. I was like, oh my gosh, because <laughs> I've thought about this for myself too. Like exactly. I mean, I'm just going to reiterate what you already said, but like that, you know, that bat, I don't like the metaphor of battling necessarily, but you know, you, you have to make a plan. Like when I was on the soccer team, you know, we'd make a plan for our opponent, right? We might have to adjust the plan given the different opponent and you have to coordinate with other people and you have to prepare the best you can, but then, then the game day comes and you just, it's like, there's always metaphors, right? So anyway, um, but yeah. And the coach and the coach is like, yeah. And the coach is like, not playing the game for you, right? Like as a chronic illness patient, you are the one at the end of the day living this disease 24 seven, but the coach can give you those, they can give you that perspective. Like when my coach sits on the sideline, I was always um, defender in soccer. So I was always at the back. So I could see, I could actually see a lot of the field, but the coach could kind of say, okay, you know, you were a little bit too far to the left there, too far to the right, like, or I'm noticing this kind of weakness. They have that perspective, but at the end of the day, it's my job to actually take those lessons and implement them. And it's really empowering, like to empower patients. Like I know in occupational therapy and physical therapy, you know, like I will say some people are kind of like grumbly or grumpy about health coaches and life coaches. And I get that there's a, there can be a quality control issue, which I'm sure you're aware of, you know, people being like, oh, just do this and you're going to like be cured forever, you know, but, and there's no like licensing board. So I get it's a complex issue, but I'm like, what can we as health professionals learn from these models, which is one of the things is that people need a coach. Like they want to be coached. You want, you want that person in your corner that first of all, maybe has been through it themselves and has learned Mm -hmm. some behavioral I don't know, a leg up maybe and figuring your own stuff out. Cause you're right. At the end of the day, you don't tell people, we don't want to be told what to do. We want to figure it out for ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. It's such a great, yeah. And I will say just for the record, I think most of the people in the audience are patients, but I, I know that there's OTs that are going to say, well, we can use coaching as part of our OT therapy technique, which is totally true. But, um, you know, they're, I think that, I don't know if you've ever heard of like the donut hole analogy, but it's used for things like um, access to services. So it's, for example, there's people who like, if you have very, very severe disabilities, you're on one side of the donut and you get services and you get supports. And if you're totally able-bodied, you're on the other side. And oh. there's this hole in the middle of people who are like, you're sick, not, not able-bodied enough to do 
the things that an able-bodied person should be expected to do, but you're not sick enough to qualify for disability. So you get missed in the middle. And I really think that people with um, chronic auto-inflammatory diseases or autoimmune diseases like rheumatoid arthritis, they kind of, a lot of times now with the modern medications, a lot of patients fall into that middle. They're not so, we're not having severe joint deformities or severe, you know, impairment so we don't necessarily, they don't, doctors don't necessarily think to refer to other professionals to help, but it still massively impacts your function and your ability to your quality of life and, and your ability to, yeah. Yeah. To- it's so frustrating. I haven't heard that analogy, but I love it. And I completely relate to it because I have tried to bring awareness to that, like void that we, yeah. are, we find ourselves in with uh, racing. I've wanted mm-hmm. to enter some races because I could as a challenged athlete. I mean, absolutely. You mm-hmm. are like, I've been in a wheelchair. I am not normal. I have the a number one nation's cause of disability. I mean, yeah, but people will judge you or because you don't really fall into a category and because you can't see it with us necessarily mm-hmm. labeled or categorized. And so I feel like we kind of just get brushed under the rug a little bit sometimes. <laughs> Yeah. I, I think that's really fascinating with respect to like, um, adaptive sports, or I don't know what the perfect phrase for it is, um, different, you know, challenged athlete sports. So that's a perfect analogy. And I think I know with spinal cord injury, there's these really fascinating rating systems. So like, for example, if you have a, um, like a wheelchair basketball or adaptive basketball team, like they'll, because spinal cord injuries can differ drastically between the different cervical level or, or lumbar, you know, cervical thoracic or lumbar level, they try to make the teams kind of like they rank, they give people ratings in terms of how severe their disability is. And then they don't, so you can't stack a team of all people with like mild or all people, you know, but then, so, so it feels like with rheumatoid arthritis, there should, there definitely should be a way. And I know that there are people who are fully qualified under disability service, you know, who get disability payments and such um, in the United States so who have rheumatoid arthritis. So it certainly is considered, you know, a disability if it's yeah. severe, but there's a huge spectrum. There's people like you who are currently able to, huge. yeah. But I can, it's like, I tell people I'm, I'm, I have, I think, okay. So we're all on borrowed time, right? I mean, none yeah. of us are getting out of life alive. I mean, right, right, right. Time on this earth. But I think you become more hyper aware of your time when you have good years with us. So I am under no illusion. And I think that's what drives me to just do as much as I can, like a crazy lady, because Mm -hmm. tomorrow it might be gone. This medication and treatment I'm on right now, it might not last forever. So I am very aware that this could end and want to take advantage of every day that I have, you know? Oh my gosh. We've literally never talked before, but like everything you're saying, I'm just like, yes. Yeah, I, like, oh, good. Yes. I think that's such a, such an important point. And it is like when I got, I got diagnosed at age 21 and I'm 39 now. So I'm almost at my half point of, yeah. you know, living half my life with it. But, um, but that I specifically remember thinking about that. Like I never really had considered my mortality in, in like vivid terms before then. And it was like, you know, I had this kind of very, and this actually, I'm, this is going to lead to another point we wanted to cover, but I had this kind of like, you know, good things happen to good people. And like, if you, you know, I was very careful about what I ate and what I, I mean, I wasn't, I, I was careful as an athlete, you know, right. I, I, I never did drugs. I was very like, you know, careful 
And then this thing still happened to me, right? But that's life, right? Like there are people who are, you know, smoke their whole life and they don't get lung cancer. And then there was like my, you know, 40 year old choir teacher who was like the most healthy person. She gets lung cancer. That's just life. There's a randomness to it. And so having to confront that at a young age gives you perspective, right? Absolutely. And that goes back to what I was saying. And I would have, if someone had told me this when I, and for any listener out there who's in the throes of the most difficult time right now, if someone were to say this to me, then I would be like, whatever. I don't want to hear that right now, but the lessons involved with that kind of pressure on you that you can apply on the other side of this, make your life that much sweeter. I mean, I wish I didn't have this. I wish you didn't have it. It's just, I wish would go away. Um, but it's made me aware of like, you just see everything around you in vivid color and you don't want to waste moments. Right. And so if any of us can live in that way, that's huge. That's, that's so beautiful. And you know, you've mentioned remission a couple of times and I did want to take a minute because a remission is a very confusing word for a lot of patients. And again, it's yet another thing that there was, you know, most people never get educated on by their doctors or medical teams. So how do you personally like define remission and how have you, has your medical team defined it? Yeah. So that is, I think it's kind of a, not a black and white thing for sure. Um, it's, I think for myself, and this is just personally, um, at some point I just didn't think that was possible because mm-hmm. I tried and failed. I should say this right now. I tried and failed every medication that was available to me like years of, cause the, you know, it takes like what, six months to see if a lot mm-hmm. of these uh, disease modifying anti-rheumatic drugs work. <laughs> and so during that process of failure, <laughs> I also mm-hmm. tried a lot of functional nutrition and all of that stuff, which was really mm-hmm. educational. But going back to remission, I just, it wasn't happening very quickly for me. Mm-hmm. And so I thought that was a term for other people. Yeah. Um, but I started to see that as I started to gain some traction with my therapies, my medicine, everything I was doing, I thought, okay, remission is at any point I can sort of get a a life that I feel is manageable, that I can do the things that I want to do. At the time, having two little kids, that would be just give me enough time to raise my kids being an active mom. It doesn't have to be that I'm perfect mom. I don't have to be Martha Stewart or be like perfect mom, but Mm -hmm. I want to be available to be present with my kids. Um, So that was kind of the first marker for me. And that's why I say, you know, just small goals of how you can be like where you feel personally that you manage your disease is remission at any point. I mean, if you get to that point that you're managing it, that's a huge accomplishment on some level. And then, I mean, medically, I think it's defined and you can correct me if you think this isn't right, but I think it's where, you know, symptoms or any appearance or blood work of disease isn't present anymore. Right. That's not to say like for us, for me, it's not like, poof, it's gone. And now I don't have to treat it anymore. No, I'm still doing the same infusions every month, but the disease is, is manageable and I'm able to be active and run and, you know, my running, it doesn't feel perfect. Like it's not a perfect thing. I'm just making it work. And what do you mind sharing what medication you're on? Just because I know people are going to want to know you don't have to though. 
Yeah, okay. for sure. So like I said, I went through and tried and failed all the, all the disease modifying drugs, methotrexate, all of them. Mm-hmm. Then I went mm-hmm. to the biologics, which are Humira yeah. failed that, Enbrel failed that, Kinneret failed that. So mm-hmm. that got me to Remicade. And that was the magic bullet for me. I mean, I was on a low, like the starting dose. And oh gosh, I mean, after so many years of feeling like just terrible, I remember just the next day being like, something feels different. There's a weight lifted that, that took my doctors down the path of figuring out the right dose and the right frequency and all of that for me. So then it was, it was amazing. And it was like, I tell people the absence of pain is a feeling in itself. Oh my goodness. Yes. Mic drop. People don't realize that if you've always lived without pain, you don't realize that the absence of pain is a presence. Good. It feels good. So that's something I started feeling and I thought, okay, well, to whatever degree this continues, I'm happy. Um, Mm. And so then that's where it got the ball rolling, right? You just need like one breakthrough of some kind. Going back to that exercise, like I couldn't even exercise for myself because I couldn't function well initially. And so once we got towards, we opened that doors toward, okay, this might lead to some level of remission. Awesome. I was like on board and just ready to grab a hold and start exercising because I know that would help. Who knows, but it's good for you and your mental health too. So I'm still on that. I've been on it for 12 years. So yeah, Remicade worked really well for me too. But then after my pregnancy, I had it, I was on it at the time I was advised to stop it and midway through the pregnancy and then postpartum, it never worked. Unfortunately, some of these, when you have, when you're pregnant, your immune system changes. So sometimes the same biologic that worked before doesn't work again, but I felt really good when I was on it. Um, so, I mean, but again, this is not to say that because both of us had a good experience, everyone else. will. like you said, it's like, yeah. I, I did really well in Enbrel too, but you didn't do well in Enbrel. So it's so individual, like, but, um, that's, that was what I was kind of trying to piece together, like, um, how long you had been on, yeah, on a biologic. So that, that makes sense. So if in your mind, remission is kind of like a state where you're able to function like your basic functions in daily life without. Right. Absolutely. I yeah. mean, I think that when we all have faced this diagnosis and start, you absorb what that means and how mm-hmm. scary your disability limitations can be for you. Yeah. Um, the ability to get around your house. Well, I mean, I couldn't get up. My husband was carrying me up the stairs. Oh my gosh. Uh, I had to call friends to take my own kids to the school. Those are mm-hmm. things you don't want to have to do. So any level of just being able to be independent at some level to me is what I would say is like remission chapter one. <laughs> if you yeah. Then it's a great thing. And I would have been grateful just to stay there because I could have raised my kids. Mm -hmm. I wasn't in that much like excruciating pain and Mm -hmm. limited range of motion and all of that. So I think that's the first step and a hope that you can work towards for sure. Yeah. Yep. And, you know, there are ways that, that doctors can kind of give you a hint as to how severe your disease is. There's, it's a complex equation between the severity upon your diagnosis, plus um, your own unique, you know, personal and family medical history, your physical exam, and then um, the amount of years you've had it, that will help them give you a personalized, you know, prognosis for how likely remission can be for you. And I think that we had talked previous to this episode about, um, you know, there are so many misconceptions in, in the auto, even in the community of people with the same disease. And I loved what you had said um, 
um, to me previously, you said it's important to realize no two people notice no two diseases or ways to remission are ever the same. And one is not better than the other. Would you like to expand on that a little bit or? Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Also, that's an emotional thing for me because it's been hard. I, I try to share my story. When you're sharing your story, you're vulnerable. And when you, I never thought that going from wheelchair to Ironman triathlete, I I was so naive and thought, wow, people are going to think what a great story. And if she can do that, like I can do some level of, of progression But what I saw was a lot of judgment about like, oh, well, then you're really not that sick if you got to that Mm. point. Or, um, yeah, judging the disease, like you're not that sick. (laughs) It's like, well, do you want to go through the archives of how long it took me to get here? It's pretty Mm -hmm. bad. (laughs) And so that was really frustrating. Um, And yeah, just dispelling the myths about, uh, you know, I, I just, it was, I was naive. I really didn't understand that people were going to be harsh about if you took medicine or you didn't, or you only tried nutrition or you didn't, or you got this far in remission or you didn't. And I was just like very disappointed and discouraged by that in the community or just outside the community too. And that's something I'm really passionate and why I reached out to you and I'm going to keep trying to reach out more is to get people to understand that it's not a straight line. And these things we deal with are amazingly, um, they really, really threaten your lifestyle. So we should be open to sharing ideas and like absorbing what everyone can say and then finding out what works for us in that way and and being excited for each other's accomplishments, you know, because this is a hard thing to live with. And if we can't be in each other's corners, living with it or celebrate our successes or really mourn with people who are not there yet. I mean, that's just so important. Yeah. And when you said the community, I'm just, just to make sure the audience knows that we're talking about the chronic illness community, right? Like there's the chronic illness community on social media and in person. And there's a lot of nuance to what you were saying, because, um, I, I, have you ever heard people talk about the, the, um, chronic illness Olympics, where people, it's like a, a joke about people or what people say is like, um, or the complaining Olympics, like, well, I have deformities on my right hand. Well, I have deformities on both hands. Well, and again, those each experience is so valid, you know, like no one wants to have this disease. No one wants to have symptoms. Everyone wants to feel good, right? It's kind of like a human thing. We want to feel good. We want to feel well, but, um, yeah, there is be comparing our level yeah. of disability or, I don't understand that. And I really want to work hard to kind of dispel that because yeah, your pain is your pain. It's valid and it's big and it's a big deal. And if you were made to feel that way ever, and then you disengage from the community, that's not helping you. Right. Right. And I think one thing that I had um, not even really realized was so prevalent until I became more active in social media was medication shaming. You know, I've done videos on this and, you know, people saying, um, and it comes from the outside, like, you know, um, somebody who doesn't have a chronic illness and doesn't know that much about it, like your friends or family, and it can come from within the community, like, oh, well, you shouldn't take those scary drugs or you shouldn't, shouldn't do this or that. And it's really complicated because it's easy to say, you just need to stop shaming people. That's really bad. But we have to look at where, 
what's the intent behind the communication? Um, for example, if someone says to me, you, oh, you've been on meth for like 18 years, except for when you had your baby. Like, I'm concerned about you because I've heard of these side effects. Like, um, do you know about that? Like, again, their intent being like, I want to help you. I care about you versus someone saying like, I want to feel good about myself because I've managed my disease with like natural right. methods. And I'm going to like, um, brag about it to you to be like, Oh, well you should like, I literally had someone be like, if you haven't tried cutting out dairy, gluten, sugar, and something else, like you can't say that none of the natural ways work or something. It's like, <laughs> yeah, we know again, it, because it's familiar, but yes. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, I think I, I try to be real. I'm a middle child. Like I'm try. I'm like a peacekeeper, like a, um, <laughs> consensus finder. And I almost feel like as both a patient and provider, yeah, I'm like a, I'm trying to be the bridge between, for you know, sure. both perspectives at times. And I, I try to be really open because like, for me, the Western medicines are so effective that like when, when the pandemic started and I had to wait a week, an extra week for my erencia, it got, it got delayed. I oh. felt symptoms like every day, noticeably, like it's like my body is no. used to that and that's what works. But I also know people whose very valid and real experiences are that their body couldn't tolerate you know, the biologics or the DMARDs, the disease modifying, and they went on a diet and it was amazing and life changing for them. And I'm not going to be like, well, because I, the medicines work for me, like you shouldn't go on your, like, obviously I want everyone to be happy and Absolutely. feel good. Anyway, sorry. Now I'm going on a soapbox. I mean, I feel like I should know better, but I've never thought about that. The intent of the message. And I think that's mm -hmm. a really healthy way to look at it. Um, and definitely give people grace. Um, but when you're already dealing with something and you have doubts yourself, when someone's putting yes. doubt in your mind extra, it does not help. Um, you know, mm. I've had someone say, oh, well, great. I'm glad Remicade works for you. It doesn't work for me. I've had that a lot. And I like, what? I don't understand the purpose of that message. I mean, yeah, I, I want something to work for you and I don't care what it looks like. And mm -hmm. I mean, being concerned for each other is great and can always ask, like, have you heard about this mm -hmm. first as a leading question? So you don't come in and attack someone with information that's probably already learned and read so much that they're overwhelmed. Right. It's like, yeah asking, have you heard of this? And I've been thinking about this a lot. And the thing that I've, I've come up with for myself or that my recommendation is even is actually before even saying, have you heard of something? Because even that information can be overwhelming to the person to say, Oh, are, are you open to some I, suggestions or ideas? Like I, I know some people who've had this too, or are you, is it just going to overwhelm you? Because I think that recognizing that information the conflicting information is so overwhelming to people at the beginning that even throwing out more information. And I know I am guilty of this, right? Cause I go on social media and I want to help everyone, you know, and I'm like, Oh, have you heard of this? And I'm like, wait a minute. They might not even want me to ask them that right now. Cause they just, they just want some peace about what they've decided. Yeah. Um, I like that. And that's actually a way that we are forming questions as health coaches. Um, yeah supposed to assume anything so it's actually a really mm. good point that you bring up are you open to 
that. Or maybe is this a good time? Like, is, is this a good time for me to bring up some ideas in, in terms of like, cause that leaves the window open for later. Cause like, I am the kind of person where I always, I want to know everything. You know, I've told my rheumatologist, you know, if it turns out that I just need to like, you know, stand on my head and like, you know, turn around three times and like say some weird chant. I would love to do that. Like if that's Absolutely. what I'm even yeah. though there's, there's no evidence for that, but if that's what actually works in my life, I will do that. You know, oh, so yeah. I, I'm not going to be like, just cause Western medicine works for me. Like I'm never going to consider anything else. Cause, and I think for me, this is again, this is going to go down a, a different path, but um, when I got diagnosed with an anxiety disorder, um, of, of course, at first I was very defensive. I was like, no, my anxiety is very functional. It helps me do all these things. And they're like, it's not non-functional. It, it's just, but it affects your, it affects your brain. And right. you know, it has some positive effects. Like you're really productive, but it has some negative effects. Like you can't sleep sometimes because you're worrying about all this stuff. And I'm like, oh yeah, but that feels like productive worrying. They're like, right. But like, you need to sleep. So anyway, but, um, but when I realized I had an anxiety disorder, I finally accepted accepted it. Um, it was just, I mean, again, disorder or just, you know, my, I'm, I, my brain seems to be wired a little bit more towards, you know, high energy kind of like, it's like really happy energy. And then sometimes it goes to like, really like frantic worried energy. And, um, I realized that because I had had such a, a positive experience with Western medicine, it, oh, anxiety, according to my therapist, um, can makes you want to have black or white thinking because it makes the world make more sense. And you don't have to like deal with the gray areas because the gray areas make you more anxious. Yeah. So, yeah. So I think what I initially, and I, again, not in a judging way to anyone else, but just for me, I was like, I'm not going to consider this is in the very beginning. Like when I went immediately into medicated remission with Enveril methotrexate, I'm like, I don't need to do anything else. I'm not going to do a diet. I'm not going to do that because this works for me. And then it was an evolution over the years to be like, okay, well then when the Western meds didn't work as, so they work for me, but they, I haven't been in complete medicated remission, like again. So I've been in, I've been in what I consider like a very functional state, but I have mild, you know, to moderate symptoms, mostly mild, but some days fluctuating to moderate, some days fluctuating to nothing. So, um, so I'm very much more open now to like alternative things. Cause why not try, you know, I went gluten-free and gluten-free didn't help my joints at all, but it helped my stomach a lot. And that makes me overall feel better. You don't know what you're going to discover by trying these things with other health benefits until you try, how do you know? And it's always evolving. I mean, mm -hmm. we're at a rate these days, the information we learn and share across different health platforms is it's just going so fast. So yeah. being open-minded and being willing to try is yeah, but you're right. I mean, once you get it figured something figured out, it works for you. You kind of get like locked in. This is it. This is it. I'm not changing Yeah, I'm here. It's comfortable and it's super easy to be in that place. And I for sure would say I've felt that way as well. Like, Oh, I'm good now. What else, what else do I have to do? Hi everyone, I'm interrupting really quickly to remind you that this podcast is brought to you by the Rheumatoid Arthritis Roadmap. It's a comprehensive online education and support program that I created from scratch to help people learn how to live a full life despite rheumatoid arthritis. In the course, you get to learn how to manage everything from physical symptoms like pain and fatigue to social and emotional aspects of living with rheumatoid arthritis. I even cover the logistics of things like how to track symptoms and how to advocate for yourself in medical appointments. To learn more, go to myarthritislife.net. How do you manage the mental side of, of, you know, like unknowns? <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's another piece of it that is so hard. I, 
I think now that I've lived with this for a number of years um, and I've been able to accomplish some things that I wanted to and I just have been very blessed and lucky, you get into a place where, okay, you don't have room to feel any kind of sadness over anything anymore. <laughs> you, oh. No, like you have it good now, so don't complain. Um, but I've noticed like, I still think, oh my gosh, but this is always around. It's weighing on me. It doesn't go away. Mm-hmm. It, there is like this, it's like the beast behind you. Yeah. You're like, when's it going to catch up to me again? Yeah. And how do you carry that around on your back? I just, I realized in the last few years that that's just the thing and it's not going to disappear. Um, mm-hmm. I just have to manage the beast back there. And I think having the plan, like you talked about, you know, what mindset are you going to have if one Arancia wears off? Something mm-hmm. I've questioned all the time. What am I going to do when I can't do what I'm doing now? And I have backup plans. I, I do. They're, they're in the archive folders. Nice. How I'm going to go through. Because I refuse. One thing I will say, I will not go back to that mental place I was before. Because that was fear. It was yeah. uncertainty. It was anxiety. It was a lot of really bad things that do not help. And I don't want to go to that place again if I can help it. Mm-hmm. And I think there's part of it that is just part of living with chronic illness. But if you have preparation and plans um, and a positive mindset that you have already overcome a lot, so you're going to be able to do it again, yeah. uh, it's powerful. So yep. yeah, it's just a new thing I've noticed in the last few years. I was like, I should feel so amazing now that things have been decent and my family was raised. Like, yeah. Uh, and I think the farther, the longer you're in remission or you've had these years, the more you're like, how much longer do I get? Yeah. Very so in that itself. Yeah. So. Yeah. And, you know, you mentioned whenever I hear the word uncertainty, it triggers me to think in a positive way about acceptance and commitment therapy, which I think I mentioned like every episode, but it's the approach that my therapist work that used that really, really was life-changing for me because, um, it, it focuses on, like you first said, like there's an acceptance of like, there is going to be uncertainty. Like uncertainty is not a problem that you can solve in your lifetime, right? Like right. no one, the doctor can, couldn't tell you 12 years ago that you were going to do well on Remicade for 12 years. They don't have the answer. No one does. Like they can give you um, probabilities, like most likely people with your experience. But I think we are often, again, if you have anxiety, you're searching for the black and white answer and your search for certainty because uncertainty causes you to, to worry because you don't know what to cling to, like what's going to happen. And and because if you feel this illusion that if I just know what's going to happen, I can make a plan. And that's why I try to convince my therapist. I have two therapists, a psychiatrist and a psychologist. And this is anyway, I love talking about this stuff because I've learned so much from them. And it's, I love making, I like making fun of my former self, but not, I mean, in, in a functional way to say like, you know, oh, I was like, tried so hard to fight against this. And like, you're just mean. I remember saying that a lot. Like, <laughs> you're just like, why are you, why are you giving up? Like acceptance takes a long time to wrap your head around because it can feel like settling. Powerful thing. You're right. And when you're, you get to be a warrior in this stuff, like you fight mm-hmm. over years of fighting. It's kind of hardwired that you're going to fight. Right. And, and letting go, they, they call it Russ Harris in the happiness trap, which I again, link to every single episode. Cause it's like my favorite book. He talks about the struggle switch, like, so you can turn on or off the struggle switch. So if someone tells me, Cheryl, you know, I don't know when a is going to stop working for you. 
I don't know if the next medicine is going to work. I can choose to turn on the struggle switch, which is what my brain wants me to do and and rail against that and say, no, like that's, I'm going to go find someone. And this is where it comes into the kind of magical thinking that sometimes happens with the sometimes, sometimes not always happens with the alternative medicine where they give you that certainty. And it's for people with anxiety. It's so tempting. Oh, just do the supplement, just do this diet. And you're going to, you're going to get cured and healed. But the way, the way of acceptance and commitment therapy that is turning off the struggle switch to say, and it doesn't, it means that turning off the struggle switch means the reality is still there. The, the bad feeling, quote unquote, the fear, the uncertainty, they are still there. You are choosing not to struggle with them. You're choosing to just, it's mindfulness based. Wow. That's yeah. It's so empowering. It's, it is. And it's, it's, it's the most paradoxical thing because until you're able to do it, it seems like the most disempowering thing. Cause you think well, you're telling me to just accept the uncertainty and fear, like, no, I am going to fight this. I'm going to conquer it. I'm going to find the answer. I'm an optimist. And then eventually being like, this is, it's literally philosophical. It's like a mindfulness-based thing where you just say, no, we don't have control. We don't control anything. Like, I think that the, and why, why we're able to do that. I think something I need to practice and get better at. And I will, now that we've talked about that, um, awesome information, but I think that when this comes to you with the first time in your life, it's so overwhelming. Like it just plows you over and you don't have a choice to make any, like any kind of mindfulness choice. You're just in emergency crisis Mm -hmm. mode for as long as it takes to figure things out. But I think once you're in this place where like us, you've had it for a while, you can choose to have more powerful mindful techniques because you see it coming. It's a lot different than yeah. it coming. No, that's, and, and what you were saying earlier about, um, you know, the fact that you, the, the, as the years go on with a chronic illness, you basically have exposure therapy, right? You're exposed to the concept of you might have good days, you might have bad days. And you un- eventually, you know, there's that quote, like, uh, you know, whenever you're feeling really bad, remind yourself, you've gotten through a hundred percent of your bad days up till now, like your track record, you know, but, um, it feels it's, you don't have the evidence from like a cognitive behavior st- therapy standpoint. You don't have the evidence that you've survived your bad days yet. If you, it's, this is like your first bad day, <laughs> like your right. first bad day with rheumatoid arthritis. You're like, well, I don't know if I'm going to survive. So <laughs> get to a point where we're like, I don't want to have to face that again, but I yeah. know if I did that I could do better. I can handle it better. Yeah. Well, and it's like the parenting is a good analogy too, right? Because no matter how much, you know, I worked a lot with kids. I worked with kids with severe behavioral and developmental disabilities and and prior to becoming a mom. And I thought, okay, well, you know, I was trying to be cautiously optimistic. I know everyone says it's hard and it's different when it's your own child, but you know, I think I'm going to bring my experiences to my, you know, to my parenting, but like, there's no way I could have, you know, prepared myself fully. I just had to survive each day and And we're all an experiment in ourselves all the time. Oh my gosh. <laughs> totally. Oh, this is so, this is so great. I mean, and I think I'm sorry. I, I I'm sorry. I keep going on. I just, I love talking about this, but I'm like, I want to make sure we get your, <laughs> no, no, no. I love it too. And it's that's see, this is why it's so important to share and 
to meet new people that we don't know that are amazing because just knowing that you can parallel yourself to someone on any level is great. And then just by talking to you, I've learned things today that I want to go research. I mean, how else do you do that unless you share your story and you reach out and find these resources? Oh, totally. Well, I'm just thinking as we're talking, like, first of all, of course, right back at you, like I'm totally learning from your experience. And also, you know, when people hear the phrase arthritis, it's such a dry thing. It's like, oh, joint pain. Like we're having these like, you know, meaning of life conversations because that's how profoundly this affects you. And that's one of the, the, my little soapboxes is it's not just joint pain. I don't think that word does it justice. It's so, it's just, it's, there's a assumption about arthritis in the general community that it doesn't even scratch the surface of what this means. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I know that you had, um, you have some ways that you like to address like the misconceptions, like what are some of the common misconceptions that you want to clear up now on yeah, the podcast? For sure. I mean, so I think I probably fell into the same category if I think about it, but at 24, 21, I mean, you don't even think about arthritis. No. Like, that's something grandma has like, it's right. Right. It just doesn't come to your mind. Um, but when you're trying to explain this to people without going into a long saga or a novel, which people don't want to hear, right. Yeah. If, if you say arthritis and I always cringe at that, when I go to tell people, I just know they're going to be like, okay, you can just take Advil for that. It's right. Exactly. Okay. And yeah. I'm trying to still come up with a solution that you can educate people about it without um, making it disinterest, not in- interesting to people to hear or to check out on it, because I think that there just needs to be more information. So <clears throat> I think when you explain that it's sim- it's sim- it's uh, systemic. Yeah. What, what, what does that mean? What systemic. does systemic mean? It's, you know, an o- all over body autoimmune condition it's pretty simple just your body is attacking itself and it's not just one area of your body it affects all of your vital organ systems and sometimes to you know varying degrees so mm-hmm. I don't know if you have the perfect answer for that it would be great no but I do know there's a big movement in the chronic in the rheumatoid arthritis community to um, by patients, by the Rheumatoid Arthritis Patient Foundation, they are trying to get it renamed to rheumatoid disease. I did and, hear that. And I was yeah. wondering if that was actually a thing. Um, I don't think it is likely to change in the textbooks and the official definition. However, historically, you know, juvenile idiopathic arthritis was actually renamed from, it used to be classified as juvenile rheumatoid arthritis and they classified it as juvenile idiopathic arthritis because it's like very distinct. They they found out from adult rheumatoid and they didn't want people to get confused. But, um, but I I think that I, my happy middle ground as both a patient and provider would be to say between a patient and a lay person, I think it is totally appropriate to choose to say, I have a disease called, I have rheumatoid disease and it's sometimes also known as rheumatoid arthritis, but it's a, it is, it is a disease that affects my whole body, not just my joints, like a quick explanation like that. that. And I, I like to liken it. I think that a lot of people understand either lupus or multiple sclerosis more than they understand. Multiple sclerosis is a neurological condition, but it has the same feature of fatigue 
as rheumatoid arthritis. They're from different places, but they both have fatigue that people kind of understand that that's a major feature of that. And um, that lupus yeah. is like a life-threatening. So, but other people say, no, people still don't understand lupus or MS. So that's not a good analogy. So that, that's what I sometimes do use personally, but. Right. I yeah. like that. And I have at times gone to lupus quite often um, mm-hmm. just because people, if they have heard of it, understand that that's, it's, it's not about your joints. Like that's not the first place people go to when you hear right. MS. So it's something that I try to bring up, but yeah, I think there's that's a hard. lot of educating that has to happen. And, you know, if anyone listening is wanting to explain this to loved ones or their, their, the place they work, for example, as a conversation you might have to have, mm-hmm. it's, don't feel like you don't feel shameful about explaining your disease to people too. I mean, you own your space. You deserve to take the time to explain to someone that you're involved with what you deal with and not feel bad about that. Mm -hmm. Um, But I agree like short and simple to the point. And so that people understand like, okay, this isn't, this isn't the short and easy arthritis I'm dealing with here. It can affect me. Absolutely. And, you know, along those same lines, because this, this is a little dilemma that a lot of newly diagnosed patients deal with is like how to explain this to friends and family. Do you have any other um, general words of wisdom or tips or advice for newly diagnosed patients? Because I think that we've just learned the hard way when we go through it the first time ourselves. Yeah. And you're kind of just blindsided by it yourself, too. So you're still trying to process it and you don't know what to say to people around mm-hmm. you. Um, but I think the most empowering thing and conversation you can have is um, being vulnerable and that this is something that's very hard for you, that this is something that you haven't, like this is a level of hard or difficult that you haven't faced before and that you need that support and patience and just mm-hmm. asking for those things as you navigate it because it affects yeah. the people around us for sure. And I think if you are, Anytime you approach someone, right, and you come from a place of like asking for help and support, and I don't know the answers yet, but I just need my side um, is the best place to come from because anyone who loves you is going to want to do that. They're going to want to step in and be there by you. And, Mm -hmm. but if, you know, if you're trying to give answers right away or explain it all, it's overwhelming for them too. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That can come. But I think initially just sitting down and asking for support and patience and love um, and understanding is really key because then you know that they ha- that you have them on your side and yeah, evolving process for sure. Right, right, totally. No, it's yeah, it's such an overwhelming period in someone's life often. Although it's it doesn't work that way for everyone because there are a lot of people who've spent you know three four years suffering without knowing why. And when they get their diagnosis, it's like a celebration because now we know you feel validated if you've been medically gaslit and you feel like, okay, I now know there's a potential treatment plan that could help relieve this. So it is really different. I definitely felt elated right after my diagnosis, like immediate, like I'm talking like, you know, days after, because I didn't, first of all, didn't realize how serious it was, but also, um, I had been again, so psychologically, um, negatively affected by being not believed, actively disbelieved by providers telling me I was just anorexic and hiding it from my parents. They literally called my parents and said, they think she's anorexic because 
unintended weight loss and uh, right. is a symptom of rheumatoid arthritis. Obviously it's not the most first symptom. It's usually accompanied by joint pain, but I only had one joint that hurt at the time and I was an athlete. So anyway, so, yeah, you know, a similar parallel story and I won't go into it, but yeah, oh, I, I lost I'm... a lot of weight too. And I don't need to have be losing weight. Uh, and it was, yeah happening. And so, yep, same, same story. And it is so sorry. What must have been a confounding variable that you were postpartum too, because it might not have been as noticeable because obviously you people do lose the baby weight, but then you don't normally continue. Two years it took to diagnose from the time I had, so had baby started getting sick two years of deteriorating before even a diagnosis. Oh my gosh. And I'm five, nine and one forty five, like a healthy, just healthy mm-hmm. girl. And, I, but I went down to like one twenty something and then my frame wow. was, um, very obvious that that wasn't yeah. healthy for me. And I'm I so had sorry. people telling me things that was just like, this isn't helpful. This just yeah. because you can diagnose me doesn't mean you should label me a certain thing. Cause yeah, I understand that. It's, and it's so hard. That, but I know people go through that too. And yeah. you just have to kind of have a resolve as you're marching through to your diagnosis that, you know, you know, yourself, you know, what your body is feeling and mm-hmm. stand by it. It's so hard. Cause there's such a power imbalance. Cause I always felt that I knew my body and I always felt confident in my own self-assessment. But once I was told by multiple doctors, I'm like, well, I respect authority. I'm not like a rebel, right? Like my normal personality is like, well, I do what the teacher says, like, you know, and the teacher's the doctor. But I was like, it was, it's such a conflict. It was such a profound conflict at a younger age. Now I'm much more you know, confident, you know, I'm almost 40. I'm twice as old as I you know, practically was when I got diagnosed, but I didn't have that. I had, com- it was, it was just a complete cognitive dissonance. Like I had confidence in myself, but I also had confidence in the doctor and they were at odds and I just couldn't resolve it. And you don't get that validation until you get your diagnosis, you know? So until then you're just lost. Like, and how do you prove, how do you prove you have something when the only people who can give you that proof don't listen to you or, or listen to you actually it's worse they listen to you and they think that they're they decide that nothing's wrong and they tell you well don't come back go to the psychologist because we don't think you're sick yeah. you're just anxious yeah no like another reason to share stories and be able to get on that phone with someone who's dealing with this and have someone give you some yes. at least trajectory to say hey have you seen a rheumatologist yet <laughs> yes you- yes oh Oh, the one I get, I've started to get all the time now is, well, I, I have all these symptoms, but my primary care did, did quote unquote, the blood work for rheumatoid arthritis, which there's not just, or the blood test. There's not just one blood test. And then they say it all came back normal. So they said that they won't refer me to the rheumatologist. Eh, You know, so anyway, I'm not a doctor, but I'm going to say, I'm going to request a second opinion. Blood work alone cannot exclusively diagnose. (sighs) Anyway, I have to say just on that note. You have to advocate, advocate yes. for yourself. It would be so nice to say that you can check out and just listen to your doctors with this. And we need to, and we want to, when we get to the right place. Yeah. But there are so many questions you need to have with your physician and you need to come informed and not be afraid to ask the questions. And in fact, I've just had this conversation with my rheumatologist last month about when Remicade doesn't work anymore, right? Mm-hmm. And I 
I, I just totally advocated for myself because I want to know ahead of time. This was part of my plan B. I yeah. said, Dr. Spencer, I just want to run this past you because I'm going to, I am going to argue this point with you. And if I'm wrong, you tell me, because I trust you. He's been my doctor forever. But I said, isn't it better for me to stay on Remicade knowing that it's even 80% eff- effective versus coming off of it and trying something An that unknown history might not work at all. And then I can't go back to Remicade because sometimes it doesn't work the next time. The yep. And he was like, yes, you are absolutely correct. And if we cross that bridge, we will deal with that. So that was just a classic example of like, that took my anxiety down. <laughs> He's not going to just yeah. rip me off of it if it's not as effective as it was. I had that exact conversation in terms of with Arencia, it, it is very, very slowly seeming to wear off, but I had the exact same conversation with my rheumatologist just in the sense of, I know that we don't rip the bandaid off immediately when you're, you start having more symptoms because it could be just that natural ebb and flow of flares and remissions of the disease. Right. So, but, and, and especially during a pandemic, we had the conversation of like, you know, let's stay on Arencia till it's really clear that it's not working anymore. That's in my particular case, but yeah, yeah, you, and you definitely get a more savvy relationship with your providers as you, as you, you know, become a more mature patient, you know, (laughs) older, older patient. Like you feel so confident going in with your notepad and your stuff. And yeah, yeah. (laughs) I know. Well, that's such a great, yeah. The advocacy, advocacy comes up almost every episode too, but I need to start wrapping it up sadly, but I want to make sure, is there anything else we didn't cover that you wanted to say or, you know, soap, any soap boxes we didn't go on that you want to go on? Cause I love going to my soap boxes. Absolutely. No, I think this has been great. I think we've been able to talk about pretty much a lot of things that yeah. we cover, which is amazing. High five to us. Um, Yay! Yeah, I hope that everyone that's listening can gain some morsels from that and just tuck it away. I know that when I listen to podcasts or read books, there's always nuggets that sort of put the puzzle together. So I hope that happens. Yeah. Oh, I'm so appreciative. Like your perspective is just really really, you know, you have so much wisdom and you have so many unique experiences, you know, again, as an athlete, as a mom, as a health coach, you know, and I really appreciate, um, you know, your balanced perspective that, you know, everyone will find what, you know, what works for them. And some people need more guidance and some people do it on their own and we all can just support and uplift each other. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Rather that for sure. Yeah. So I'm sure some people are going to wonder where can they follow you? Of course, I'll put it in the show notes, but for the auditory learners, where can they follow you on social media? Absolutely. Um, I'm at coach Christy 10 on Instagram and Mm -hmm. it's, that's just really a good place where I share my adventures and the hope for the lifestyle that I want to keep living. Um, I hope it's inspiring, uplifting. Sometimes I, sh- I share some vulnerable stories there or just what I've been up to. So yeah, mm-hmm. you can follow if you're interested. Yeah. Thank you. And I, you know, I, 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 there's so many little threads we could follow up on, but one last little thread is that, you know, I, I'm sorry that you had the experience when you shared the positive things you've been able to do that people were kind of cutting you down from saying, well, you, it must not be that bad. Yeah, that, well, because you know your story from start to finish and they only yeah. see the finish, the finish side. And so they, they make assumptions about it. And mm-hmm. it just makes me think like, how better can we share our stories or, you know, I mean, social media, it's like, 
powerful, but there's other avenues like reaching out to podcasts and articles and really sharing the whole story. The whole story. Yeah. And I think like one of the, I think biggest things that has changed about me in my own mindset and outlook on life is I used to, and I, I still struggle with this, but I used to spend a lot of time thinking that, you know, I could trying to control other people's thoughts about me, you know, oh, I just need to explain it better. But, you know, I've definitely come to realize that other people are going to think what they think. And there's a degree to which I can alter how I present my story, but there's going to be someone no matter what. And I think that the social media is kind of like a good exposure therapy for this, no matter what I say and how I say it, there's going to be somebody who chooses from their own volition to interpret it in a way that maybe I didn't mean it. I didn't intend that that way, or I, that I did intend it and they just don't like it. And that's just like, I can't control that to learn. (laughs) And I think that it will tend to make you want to not share your story if it's yeah. hurts and it does hurt. But I have to say, we need to keep sharing our story because the people you do resonate with or that you touch is worth it. Um, yes. Yes. It's worth the risk. And I think the risk of, you know, being on feeling unliked or, you know, like they say, like for every like 10 positive comments, you know, I get one negative one that might really sting and it's hard it's hard to persevere despite that. But, you know, for in my, yeah, in my case, and obviously it sounds like your case that the it's worth the, it's, it's worth it to share your story because you can help so many people. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the arthritis life podcast. This episode is brought to you by the rheumatoid arthritis roadmap, an online course that I created from scratch to help people live a full life with rheumatoid arthritis from social and emotional aspects of coping with rheumatoid arthritis to simple physical strategies you can use every day to manage things like pain and fatigue. You can find out more on my website, myarthritislife.net, where I also have lots of free educational resources, videos, and more. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Arthritis Life Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Room to Thrive, an educational program I created from scratch to help you go from overwhelmed to confident, supported, and connected in a matter of weeks. You can go through the pre-recorded course on your own, or you can take the course along with a support group. Learn more at the link in my show notes, or you can always go to www.myarthritislife.net. And if you like this podcast, I would be so honored if you took the time to rate and review it. I also encourage you to share it with anyone you know who might benefit from it. I also wanted to remind you that you can find full transcripts, videos, and detailed show notes with hyperlinks for each episode on my website, www.myarthritislife.net. If you have any ideas for future episodes, or if you want to share your story or wisdom on the podcast, just shoot me an email at info at myarthritislife.net. I can't wait to hear from you.